Who is God really? I think that's the question that people really try and sort out in reading the scriptures. And we talk about it being a story. I think we can honestly say, if you just read the scriptures and take it at face value, as many people do, you have a God in the Old Testament that's a bit scary. People are terrified of him. He whacks people, destroys things, appears, people die. Uh, it talks a lot about God's anger burning against certain people. And he just, you get the idea that this God is just really, really angry and offended at humanity and our failures. And then you have the New Testament, and Jesus comes into the world, and Jesus, who is the physical incarnation of God, Jesus wasn't the good side of God. Jesus was actually, as Hebrews says, the exact representation of the nature of the Father. So when Jesus comes into the world, we're seeing God as he really is, and now he's not as angry as everybody thought he was. He's not running away from people who are sinners. In fact, Jesus is actually seeking out sinners and spending so much time with him that the religious crowd, the people better schooled in the language of the Old Testament, are, are, don't even see when God is sitting in the very room with them. They can't recognize him for who he is. In fact, what they do recognize, they don't like and decide to eventually kill. One of the scariest things to me as, a, as, as someone who considers the Bible incredibly significant, and I've studied it over 40 years of my life, is that the people who knew the scriptures the best when Jesus came onto the planet couldn't recognize God when he sat in the same room with them. If Jesus is the full extension of the reality of God, then what do we say about an Old Testament that seems to lead us to a very different conclusion? When we look at the Old Testament, just a cursory reading of it. In fact, this, this statement was given recently uh, by Richard Dawkins in the, in the God Delusion. You probably haven't seen it. This is one of our top dog atheists these days, trying to con and, and a, an aggressive atheist. Not only does he not believe, he doesn't want anybody else to. He wrote this about the God of the Old Testament. And he, and he calls the God of the Old Testament fictional, which is, already tells you where he's coming from. But just listen to the quote. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, capriciously malevolent, oh, I sorry, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's a mouthful. I don't even know what all those words mean, but I completely disagree with him. And as much as I disagree with him, I can understand why people who have heard some of the Old Testament stories we've told and have seen some of the movies that we've produced about the God of the Old Testament can come to that kind of conclusion, as I've heard from many people. If that's who God is, I would prefer not to know him at all. What I think that is is a, mis a misinterpretation of the God of the Old Testament. Jesus comes, as I said, and he shows us a very different God. The Old Testament construct is God is this terrifying sovereign and we are just his lowly slaves and if we do what he wants he blesses us and if we don't do what he wants horrible things happen and you can read through exodus and leviticus and numbers and deuteronomy and you'll get that language do good get good do bad get bad be faithful to my covenant and i'll watch over you be unfaithful to my covenant and i will send pestilence on you i will send enemies to devour you and you read that through the whole of the old testament construct and those are for reasons for which i think relate to some things we'll talk about from the new the fact that in our sin we are shame-based creatures and being shame-based creatures it is easy for us to be terrified in the face of God's holiness. And if we're terrified in the face of God's holiness, we ascribe that terror to him. It's got to be God's fault. 
But then when you look at the incarnation, you've got to re-question that now. Because when Jesus comes, people are not afraid of him. Not people who are sinful, not people who are broken. The people that are, are scared of him are people who are afraid he's going to dislodge them from their power position in the community because of what he's teaching and how he's loving people and the fact that crowds want to listen to him more than they want to listen to them. And that's gotten a whole bunch of people riled up. But Jesus is a very different God than I think we would expect it. I've talked in seminaries all over the world, and I've asked them many times, how many of you, if you only had the Old Testament, it's all you ever read, and Jesus came into the world, and you could sit down with the Jesus of Scripture, how many of you are saying, yep, this Jesus is the natural fulfillment of everything I read in the Old and, I, and the people are no, it wouldn't be that. And that's partly the way we read the old, as we'll see. But people have asked me, you know, what happened to God between Malachi and Matthew? Did he go to a Billy Graham crusade? Did he give his heart to Jesus? And then all of a sudden he comes back a better guy. And, you know, we've got that 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. And, and what happened to God? Because God seems totally different. And to the degree, here's what I want to tell you, and we'll answer this better on Saturday, to the degree that he seems totally different is to the degree that we are misreading the Old Testament. But there's still something in us. As much as people, when, I, when we read He Loves Me, and we talk about He Loves Me, people always will quote to me the fear scriptures from, from you know, well, shouldn't we fear, you know, do we fear God or do we not fear God? And part of that discussion comes because the Old Testament says a number of times, I think 23 times, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's something we've heard. We get it quoted all the time. And particularly if you're in a religious context where people are trying to do behavioral conformity through human performance, fear is the best basis to do that for people. Fear is just what works. So you're going to hear it a lot. You're going to hear a lot of Old Testament preaching in performance-based environments because they see fear as the methodology of change. But then Jesus comes along and... He says something like, this is John's writing toward the end of his life, and I love this, the scripture we'll probably focus on again. John's saying in chapter 4, verse 16, and so we know and have come to rely on the love God has for us. We're not seeing God in quite the same way. John's not afraid of Jesus. John's not afraid of the Father. John has found peace. He's come to rest in reliance on that love. And so he goes on to say, God is love, and there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. That tells me a couple of things. One, something about the Old Testament construct of fear changes. God doesn't change. Our perception of God is changing. It used to be this terrifying sovereign to lowly slaves, but Jesus is using language, John 15, 15, I no longer call you slaves. I call you friends. We've got John talking about this, that perfect love casts out fear. What that tells me is, because I have this argument too, when people tell me, no, we need the fear of the Lord for holiness. I say, oh, really? So tell me then what God fears. And they always go, what do you mean, what does God fear? Well, you tell me holiness derives from fear. God is holy. So tell me what it is that God fears. And well, you know, God doesn't fear anything because God's God. Well, and yet he's holy. And it tells me what, what John is saying here. Holiness derives from love. You learn to love God like God loves you. You learn to love others like you're loved by the Father, and you know what? You'll be holy. Galatians 5 says that very, very clearly, that love will fulfill the whole law. As one man said to me one time, I love this quote, it seems to me then the law is how God says we must treat people we don't love. And I think that's a great statement for the law. It is how you must treat people you don't love. Because if you love God and love others, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to take God's name in vain. You're not going to have idols. You're not going to do any of that stuff when you learn to live in the real love of God. But if you're on a performance track, see, that threatens people. We need the fear of God. And I get that. I grew up in the fear of God. 
There's a lot of things I didn't do as a kid in the 60s when, you know, sex and drugs and all that stuff was going on. I'm a California boy, you know, out in the whole hippie movement. And lots of things I didn't do because I knew the day I did it, I'd probably be in a car accident and die and go to hell. And absolutely, the fear of the Lord kept me from doing many harmful things in my life. And so I understand people who say, man, I don't want to lose that because if I lose my fear of God, there's no, t- and I've heard daddy, I've got that email too. If I had no fear of God, boy, you couldn't believe the stuff I'd go and do. And so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think the Old Testament's right on that. But what the New Testament says, it's not the end of it. If you don't love God, you'd be well served to fear him. Once you learn to love him, you'll never fear, you'll never need to fear him again because love will transform you in ways fear never can. In fact, holiness is derived from that. The last of these is Romans 8.15, which I think... I think it's a theme verse of Romans, theme ver- and Romans uh, very much a theme chapter of Paul's letter. He's telling us exactly how this transitioned. For you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Paul's saying that's the Old Testament construct. God held us in check with fear until Christ could come in the world and redeem us from the law and redeem us from performance. So he says, you've not been given that again. We, we did once. That was part of how God worked. But in the story, now you've received a spirit of sonship or a spirit of adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. This is not just an intellectual conclusion. What he's saying is somehow our hearts know, man, we're loved. And now we can live inside the reality of that love and embrace God for all he is and, and, and know him in that way. So I I think that's part of the story. Who is God really? The terrifying guy we're supposed to fear? Or see this loving Abba that he's wanted to engage us through the Son and the redemption of the cross so that we could be free of shame? And I've just covered a huge story right there, okay, that we'll unpack in in the days to come. But that, when he unpacks our shame at the cross, now we get to engage the Father in a completely different way where fear becomes irrelevant, where love becomes the powerful transformative event. And I think when you read Scripture, that's why you're going to see aspects of God that are terrifying in the Old Testament. And then you get to the New Testament and you see this message of love. But as much as we talk about it, and there are hundreds of Scriptures that talk about transition, that transition into that kind of love, here's what I always... Well, what about the New Testament fear factor? There are lots of Scriptures in the New Testament that says we need to be afraid. Fear Him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. And most of well, that's that's God guy. I don't know that it is. Many scholars differ, and I, don't, I actually don't think it is. I think what Jesus taught, because Scripture doesn't picture God as the one throwing people into hell. He pictures sin as the one that does it, and the enemy as the one doing it. Many translations, this is capitalized. The fear him, and it's capital H, so people go, okay, that's God. So yeah, we've got to fear him. I'm not convinced it is. I think God is the redeemer in this story. He's the one that doesn't want to be feared. He wants to be loved. And out of that, is what the revelation happens. The next one I hear, Ananias and Sapphira story. Big story. Oh my gosh, God whacked those people for lying. Well, did he really? I mean, if God whacked people for lying, would there be anyone in church today? Seriously. Would you be here today if God whacked people for lying? Particularly if you're lying about money, which is what they were lying about. There are moments, and we'll see this is true. When when you say God is love, we don't mean, well, God's just, you know, a nice guy. And he just does whatever everybody wants because he just wants to be loved. No, in God is both love and light. And there are times when God has to act in history because something is going on that's going to ruin something God's doing. And in this young community of the early church, 
where people were generously sharing their lives to help other people. Here comes the first corruption of that. And for whatever reason, God thought it's significant enough that I need to take these people out. Doesn't mean he hated them. Doesn't mean they weren't loved. Doesn't even mean they went to hell. If you want to add all that to the text, that's not there. It just simply happens. Today, the Holy Spirit is going to take you home. Just we, this, you, we need to set an example of the corruption, of the giftedness of community. If God were doing, like, like Billy Graham said, if God doesn't start whacking a whole lot of people, he's going to have to apologize to Ananias and Sapphira. Because that's just not the God we have. Ananias and Sapphira doesn't prove God's this mean, angry guy that whacks people who make mistakes. There's something larger going on in Acts chapter 5. God fixes it. Then there's this. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. This is Paul talking. And so, well, see, Paul knew what it was to fear the Lord. That, that, Paul's saying because we knew what it was to fear the Lord. We know what that was. We try to persuade all men. Because his next verse is about it's the love of Christ that compels us. It's not fear that Paul's living by now. It was fear when he was in junior Pharisee school and then being a head Pharisee running around whacking people for Jesus. Fear did drive his life. But he's saying because we know the horrible bondage of living in fear, we're trying to persuade all men to come live love, to come in the reality of the gospel and see what love can do that fear never could. Then there's this one. Ah, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, scary stuff, because God's going to get us all. Except we always leave out the very next verse, which is, For it is God who is at work in you to act, to will and to act according to his good purpose. Does that sound like the one we're fearing? That's the very next verse. In fact, if you look up the verse in Luke chapter 12, or if you remember the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on this long discussion about how the Father cares for you more than he cares for the birds. And so you don't get the idea that that's who you're supposed to be fearing. Philippians 2, it's not, it's not God that we fear in working out our own salvation. It's that we fear the waywardness of our own flesh, and we fear what sin can do to deceive us. So there's, there's that sense of, I'm going to be serious about working out my relationship, because I realize the potential for self-deception. I realize I can create God in my own image, and I don't want to do that. I want to serve God as He really is and as the Scriptures unpack Him. So Philippians is not at all about, okay, be fearful, because you could really blow this. It's, you know what? Have a healthy sobriety and fear of what you can do and what sin can do to deceive you. And then this, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come, Romans 14, 7. Now that, again, not spoken to followers of Jesus at all, spoken to people who are lost at the end of the age and the whole wrath at the end of the age is coming upon unredeemed humanity. There'd be reason to fear there. These are the only scriptures in the New Testament that make the case for fear. Only one of them, work and it really is aimed at unbelievers not at believers and not people whom God wants to redeem and yet so much for us it is so much easier for our flesh to believe that God wants us to fear him than it is for us to live inside that love and relationship and so many of us miss that and I think part of it is how much our flesh wants to blame God how much we want to how much we need to see him as a horrible creature in fact our misunderstanding of the old testament I'll say this I think is, is really important if you believe God's this terrifying presence in the Old Testament, and Jesus came and kind of schmoozed us in the back door to God to make things, if you, if you do things right, then God, you don't meet that bad God, but he's still out there somewhere. Then I think those kinds of Christians grow up like I did sometimes, the schizophrenic children of an abusive father. 
It's almost the Stockholm Syndrome, isn't it? Kid gets kidnapped by somebody. He's got a great case out in California. This gal kidnapped at 11, becomes a wife, bears children, lives with this guy for 18 some odd years, whatever, and realizes during that time it really feels like a wife, acts in ways to be endearing to her husband because why? Because her well-being depends on making the best of this environment. That's the Stockholm Syndrome. The captive becomes a very dysfunctional human being sucking up to the captor. And I think the construct we've created of God by the misunderstanding of the Old Testament and what's going on in the New is that many Christians in this Stockholm Syndrome thing, yeah, God's this terrifying thing. Jesus kind of made things okay, but I've got to act really good or God's going to turn on me again and give me a really bad disease or put me in a car accident or do something really horrible in my life. And so we live in this carrot stick, fear, grace kind of paradigm that's debilitating to those of us who want to live in the life and freedom of Jesus. What I think we have in Scripture, and we look at the Old Testament, and we say, gosh, it's all about the angry God. No, it's not. Just quickly, the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's an often repeated phrase in the Old Testament. It, it, it is kind of the formula. This, this is God as he wants to be known. Do not be afraid. Whenever God or an angel appears, it's not, yeah, be afraid, I'm scary. It's, oh, don't be afraid. I'm here to help. I, you know, I'm not here to, to whack on people. Deuteronomy 6, the fulfillment of the law. Love God, love your neighbor. Loving kindness, 184 times in the Old Testament. Love, hundreds of times more than that. So the, the overwhelming theme of the Old Testament, as we'll see, is God's a lover come to win the world. Now, he has intruded in history at moments, like Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, to adjust something that's going to lose the history of the world. He does. And when that happens, yes, horrible things happen and people die. Not because God's this angry tyrant, but because he's the redeemer in the world. And then finally, this is Lamentations, the fall of Jerusalem, probably the most painful event in the Old Testament. And from Lamentations, God's mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God, out of that great pain. The cry to learn to live loved is at the heart of our engagement with the story of Scripture. It's not in competition with it. But because we've misunderstood the Old Testament, in my view, it's caused us to end up with, a first of all, wrong stereotypes of the God of the Old Testament. I think it's a stereotype that he's a terrifying bully. And then a wrong understanding of God of the New Testament, just saying, well, he's just God of love, and everything's wonderful, and he just don't throw roses in our path. And if you live with God very long, you know that's not true either. That God is light, and God wants to not only bring into our life his love and warmth, he also wants to lead us into his light and truth in the way he's called us to live. Um, let me cover this later on. We're going to cover that story a little bit later on. This from uh, an Orthodox priest from the 1980s, but a, a, a very important scripture as relevant today as it was then. If you only love God because you're afraid of him, here's what he says. Who can have love a torturer? Even those who try hard to save themselves from the wrath of God cannot really love him. They only love themselves. Trying to escape God's vengeance to achieve eternal bliss by managing to please this fearsome and extremely dangerous creator. Isn't that an interesting point? If the only reason you're following God is because you're afraid he's going to destroy you if you don't, then it's still only self-love. You're still not learning how to live in the love that Jesus wanted to reveal to us.